You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Well, this morning, the title of my message is Life-Changing Good News. And the gospel is life-changing good news, is it not? Uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 1 to 15. And for the next probably five messages that I preach, I'm going to be preaching from Colossians. I'm going to start off um, just by reading Colossians 1, 1 to 15. And today I've chosen to use the NIV, which I rarely ever do, but today I've chosen it. It starts off like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Father God, I thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would peek our, our spiritual ears and that our hearts would be open to receive from your word this morning. God, may it transform us and our, transform our thinking and the way we live out our life from this point forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, to begin this morning, I wanted to share a story. As a story of transformation by the gospel, of what the gospel can do, not only in a life, but in, in, in an entire nation. And many of you have heard of this individual that I'm going to read a story about. Um, the, I'm reading an expert, actually, from a book called The Book That Transforms Nations by a guy named Lorne Cunningham. And uh, he's the founder of YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And uh, they have a mission to establish disciples all over the world, I think in every nation of the world, and they're doing a fantastic job at it. 
Transformation happens when we immerse ourselves in our Bibles, asking God's help as we search for principles to order our lives. The process Paul called having our minds renewed. This is what happens across this is what happened across Britain more than two centuries ago. During the time of John Wesley, revival led to transformation. You could even call it a revolution. Wesley and the Real Workers Revolution. People of all eras think that they're living in the most of evil times. That's human nature, it seems. But in many ways, John Wesley and his followers faced harsher challenges than we do today. It's hard for us to realize how godless and cruel England was in the middle of the 18th century. Thousands poured into the cities during the Industrial Revolution looking for a better life. Instead, many ended up as human grist for the mills, and it was a time of great darkness. No one was an advocate for the men and women and children who worked long, dangerous hours in inhumane conditions, in factories and in mines, earning pitiful wages. Hunger was constant. Thousands fell prey to alcoholism, seeking escape from daily horrors. The weak and the young became victims of tuberculosis, diphtheria, cholera, and a host of other diseases bred in overcrowded slums and overflowing privies. Children of the poor didn't go to school. As early as age four or five, they went to work in factories or mines, often working more than 12 hours a day. In textile factories, children served as piecers and scavengers, tying broken threads onto moving machines and crawling under moving parts to pick up loose cotton. Some were scalped in the process when their hair was caught. Others had their hands crushed by machinery. Others fell into the machinery and died. In match factories, little ones died from breathing in phosphorus. If they lived, the phosphorus rotted out their teeth. Down in the mines, children pulled coal cars and hauled large baskets of coal on their backs. Mine owners could have used horses or mules, but animals simply cost too much. And to replace them um, within the frequent cave-ins. So they used small children who crept through the small spaces they were too narrow for adults and too narrow for large animals. Despite this cruel treatment, the church largely turned a deaf ear in England towards the poor. Established churches became comfortable resting places for the affluent. Deism dominated their theology, portraying God as a clockmaker creator that was largely uninvolved with daily human affairs. This brief coupled with fatalistic form of Calvinism that swept the nation, gave little incentive for anyone to challenge the status quo. Thankfully, God prepared a nation changer. His name was John Wesley. Wesley was an ordained minister in the Anglican church, but things were not going very well for him. He had always sought to do the right thing. While he was, stu while he was a student with his brother John at Oxford, um, John and his brother, sorry, I'll reread that. While they were students at Oxford, John and his brother Charles were part of a group call, who called themselves the Holy Club. Their disciplined prayer and Bible reading attracted the scorn of most of the fellow students who called them Methodists. Despite all of his efforts, though, Wesley was filled with doubt and unsure even of his own salvation. He failed as a missionary when he went to America to the colony of Georgia. Coming back home to England, he felt defeated. 
He was about to quit the ministry altogether when something happened that changed him to his core. On May 24th, 1738, he was sitting in a Bible study at the Aldergate District of London, listening to a Moravian preacher who was speaking from Luther's preface to the Book of Romans. Wesley later recorded this life-altering experience in his personal journal. About a quarter before nine, while the speaker was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did not trust in Christ. I felt I did finally trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me in that moment that he had taken away my sins and saved me from the law of sin and death. This changed everything. God's love filled Wesley, and he knew that his sins were finally forgiven for good. He immediately set out to spread this good news to others. John and his songwriting brother, Charles, believed that they could reform the Church of England. However, staunchly conservative churches gave no welcome to these emotional preaching and singing brothers. The brothers were literally locked out of many churches, church after church, weekend after weekend. So the Wesleys took their message outside into the open air. A shocking thing at that time, this method was being used by a friend of theirs from their Holy Club days in Oxford. His name was George Whitefield. Whitefield. As the Wesleys and the Whitefields preached to the poor, they lit a fire to what became one of the longest, most radical social movements of all time. Their influence in England changed laws, changed the overall society. Something simple, such as ships, merchant ships, that were filled with workers. They would be coming across from the Americas, filled with goodies, and they would overload their ships with piles of things. It would be way overweighted. The ships would be sinking way, sitting way below in the water where they should be safely. And storms would come and destroy the ships, sink the ships, and for the owners of these, these merchant companies, it was a win-win either way. If they got the ship back home safely, they had much more plunder than they ever would have had otherwise. Even though it was at the, the detriment of the workers and those who were serving in those horrible conditions. If the ship sank, they would receive a nice insurance settlement for their effort. And so regardless, they weren't really interested in changing their ways. But when the message of the gospel swept through England. People got mobilized, and people began to change things. And so actually there's an individual from this church that um, came up with a system of drawing a line on the boat, where if the boat had too much weight in it and it sank below that line, that they'd have to remove cargo or people so that that boat could safely travel across the ocean. And they still use that standard actually today. Um, but there are many different things that they did from um, feeding the poor, starting schools, the laws such as children going to school and that being mandated, it was the church's involvement. Even in Canada, you look at the history of the school system in Canada, well, there used to be no such thing as a public school system. There was an Anglican school system and a Catholic school system. At some point, the, the Anglican and the Protestant system merged and became what we now call the the public system, we still have a remnants of what we call the, the Catholic system, and we still have that in healthcare as well. That back in these days, there was no such thing really as public hospitals. They were church-run hospitals. 
And these were things that came from the movement of John Wesley and people like him. To finish the story here, it says this, Wesley didn't live to see all the reforms that touched off by his efforts to disciple his nation. But it's hard to imagine our world today if, we, if it had not been for the thousands and thousands of people in small groups studying the Bible and applying it to their lives in England. It all began when one man had his heart strangely warmed and obeyed God and his word, teaching his nation how to live God's way. And God wants to do it again. We are a nation that is largely strayed from doing things God's way. And when we do things God's way, there's blessing. God blesses a nation when we live according to the principles of his word. When we stand uprightly and walk in righteousness, stand for truth, God will bless our nation again and continue to bless us if we will do that. I'm just going to here jump to Colossians 1, 1 to 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Number one, one thing that I want to point out here is that Paul is an apostle of, of Christ by the will of God. Paul was different than other apostles. He was not an original disciple. He was not appointed by any of the original disciples or apostles, but he was directly God-appointed. Some of you will know the story of Saul to Paul on the road to Damascus. He was traveling, persecuting Christians, going to all these home churches, pulling them out, arresting them, ultimately murdering many, many Christians in the early church. But God met him on the road to Damascus and blinded him. And later, a man named Ananias came by God and prayed for him, and his eyes were opened. It says, the Bible says it was like scales fell from his eyes. And the Bible says he was then filled with the Spirit and baptized. And this was the beginning of Paul's journey. And after that, he left, and he went to Arabia, where God ministered to him and revealed things to him. And he, it was quite a number of years before he actually went to the Council of Jerusalem and met with the other apostles, such as Peter. And so he was a man who was appointed by God. And he's writing this letter with Timothy. To God's holy people in Colossae. Second thing is, is here, the God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful followers. You know, some translations will say to the saints and the faithful brethren who were at Colossae. You know, what is it that makes us saints? You know, the Bible calls you a saint if you are a believer. If you are a child of God, you are a saint. Your nature is now changed. You are now a man or a woman walking in righteousness. But what is it that makes us saints or God's holy people? Well, one is not what we do. It's not about the doing of things that makes us a saint. It was not the actions of Paul that made him an apostle, made him a saint. It was not the actions of the Colossian church that qualified them to be saints, but it was their position in Christ because of their faith. You'll see here that Paul writes, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. 
what qualified them was their faith in Christ, their faithfulness to God. And therefore, that made them in Christ, Christ's own. The Greek word for saint literally just means God's holy people set apart for God. It means set apart. And in the case of this letter to the Colossian church, he identifies the Colossians as saints who are faithful in Christ. Continuing on, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, that you have already heard about the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. You know, first off, I want to note that here Paul is thankful. He's thankful for the things that he hears about the church in Colossae. Now, Colossae was a small cosmopolitan city that was about 100 miles away from Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of the, the home base for Paul when he was on his missionary journey to those cities in that region of what we would now call Turkey. Um, and here he is. But the thing is, you can tell from his letter that he did not actually visit Colossae. He is writing to people whom he did not personally lead to Jesus. And so he is writing, saying he's thankful for the things that he hears about this church. Number one, he's thankful for their faith. You see, their faith was built off of what they had heard about the word of truth. Faith is, begins often by preaching the word of God and the hearing of the word of God. The gospel had come to them. They'd heard it, and it changed their life. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And this is the message that was preached by the apostles, the message of God's grace and salvation to all those who will believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's the same message that we sing about and that we preach here in Canada in 2018 at Coley Community Church. We preach that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. You see, the message, a paraphrase, follows up this verse by saying, Scripture reassures us no one who trusts God like this with their heart and soul will ever regret it. It's exactly the same no matter what a person's religious background may be. There's one God over all of us acting in the same incredible, generous way to everyone who calls out to him for help. All who call out to Jesus and believe in him will be saved, Jew or non-Jew, someone with a Buddhist, Muslim, or secular upbringing, it doesn't matter. All who choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ and follow him will be saved. And anyone can hear the gospel and choose to accept the truth and follow Jesus. And you want to know who the primary people are that God has called to preach the word? Would it shock you if I said it's not me exclusively, but it's also you guys? It's the whole church? That my primary job is to preach to you and to edify you and prepare and equip you to be able to go and share the hope that you have with those outside of the church that are not in the church yet? Isn't that a wonderful way to think about those who are friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, those who aren't in the church yet? But it's contingent on us being obedient 
to the call of God on our life. To go and to preach and to share the word. But it's not something that you do exclusively by yourself. It's something that us as a community are going to begin to do more often together as a group. See, the Christian faith is not a leap in the dark, as some may think, but it resets upon a foundation of historical facts about God. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we perhaps should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he is the son of God and offering the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins to anyone who repents and believes in him. Second point I want to make is that Paul is thankful for the love that the Colossians demonstrate to all God's people. As the church, we should be setting a model for what love looks like to the world. Because the love that the world understands is a false love. Romantic love has become an idol of infatuation. Love has been turned into infatuation. You know what I mean when I say infatuation? Infatuation is when, you know, the girl walks by and the music comes on and the wind's blowing through her hair and you instantly have this attraction. Two people have a physical attraction. But love goes so much deeper than just a physical, carnal attraction. God's love is a self-sacrificing love in which he came as a God-man, fully human and fully divine. And he died so that we could know the Heavenly Father and walk with him in relationship once again. It's a self-sacrificing type of love. It's not the type of love that as soon as I don't get what I need from you, I'm out of here. Because God wasn't getting what he desired from us. We were far away from him. The Bible actually says that we were enemies of God. And the only reason that we can love God is because he first loved us. That's grace. That's grace. It's hard to love somebody that does not love you sometimes. It's hard to love your enemy. It's hard to love somebody that's spitting in your face that's coming in opposition to you sometimes. But that's grace. And God demonstrated it first and foremost through his son. And we are called to follow him, which means that we are to love one another. And Paul is thankful and highlights this to the Colossians, saying that I hear that you love, that you love all God's people, and I commend you for that. And number three, he says the hope that you have placed in Christ for the future. He thanks God for the fact that they are people of hope. People that are not overcome by their circumstances in the moment, but they have hope for the future. And they trust that God is going to bring them through their current circumstances because God has a plan to be with them forever and ever into eternity. Paul continues by saying, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace. The gospel is a story of God's grace towards man. When I say man, I mean mankind, man and woman and child included. 
Much of the New Testament deals with God's grace, especially in the writings of Paul. Paul, in fact, opens up every single one of his letters, including Colossians, with grace and peace to you from God our Father, and in some cases, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. The only way that any of us can enter into a relationship with God is because of his act of grace towards us first. The gospel is the good news that God has made a way for us to be made right with him by the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And we are saved through faith because of God's grace. Henry Cloud once said, grace is the first ingredient necessary for growing up in the image of God. Grace is unbroken. It's uninterrupted. It's unearned. But it's accepting that relationship with God. Grace is God's undeserved kindness towards you and towards me. And anytime you think that you have to do anything to deserve or earn God's kindness towards you, it is an addition to the gospel, and it is no longer grace. There's nothing that we can do to deserve or earn God's grace. It is something that is completely unearned and undeserved, which is why it's so amazing. As soon as you try to add conditions or anything that you must do in order to earn salvation outside of believing, you are no longer talking about grace. Paul confronts the Galatian church about this, actually, in another book, in the book of Galatians. And and in this particular context, some of the Jewish converts in the Galatian church were teaching that you must first convert to Judaism, that you must become like a Jew, that you must be circumcised, that you must follow all of the rules of the law of Moses. And Paul has quite an intense response. They're actually studying this right now in youth discipleship group. But his response in Galatians 3 is this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the spirit by obeying the law or by believing what you had heard? The gospel. Are you so foolish after beginning in the spirit, you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort? We must always remember that the gospel message is received when one understands and accepts God's grace. Following the Christian faith without a clear understanding and accepting the grace of God is like driving a two-stroke boat motor without mixed gas. I'm sorry, I'm exhausting these motor joke, these motor illustrations the last few weeks but I have to give you one more. Last summer, I prepared our boat, our little 14-foot aluminum boat, and I got the motor ready, and uh, we went out on the lake, Rhea and myself and my two little kiddos, and we were having a wonderful time boating around, and then all of a sudden, the engine stops. And I think, oh no. And so I'm trying to get this thing going, going. I can't get it started again. I called Jesse Wires. And I say, Jesse, help me. 
And he's like, is he's trying to help me diagnose what's going on? And we couldn't figure it out. And so anyhow, eventually we were sitting there long enough that a boat was coming by and he said, Hey man, you need a lift? And we said, yes, thank you. So we attached a rope to the front of my boat and he towed us back to Cold Lake Provincial Park dock. Later, what I discovered was that I had forgot to mix my gasoline before I put my gasoline into my motor. And so anyone that has ever operated a two-stroke motor will know that you have to use a mix usually a 50 to 1 gasoline to oil ratio in your motor to lubricate all the gears and stuff inside. I neglected to do that. And uh, it looks like my motor might be toast. I don't know. Adam Reisinger is helping me out with that for this next summer. It's still at his house in his garage, I think. But um, great man, by the way, that Adam. And that Jesse. They're always there for you in a pinch. But um, that is almost what it's like when we try to live the Christian life, operating under works, try to earn our way, rather than applying and understanding and receiving the grace of God is that it might get you driving and you might function in the church for a little while. You might clug along, but eventually it's going to break down because that's not how you were ever designed to operate. You were never designed to operate under a workspace system as a Christian, as someone who has now been freed from the kingdom of darkness as we sung about this morning. But you were designed to be a son and daughter of God operating from the grace of God in our life every day knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we are spirit-filled, and that we are loved, and that we are more than conquerors, that we can overcome all circumstances by the power of God who lives in us. Going through the motions of Christianity continually, trying to earn God's favor, and ultimately salvation by doing and being a good moral person is incomplete. It's not actually Christianity. It's like the motor that you think is going to get you to the lake and then it dies on you. And there are going to be, I think, some very disappointed Christians one day. And sometimes I think about that scripture, that one where, you know, people die and they're standing before the Lord, they're standing before the Lord and, and they say, but Lord, we did all these things in your name. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. We did all these things. Jesus says, go away from me. I don't know you. I wonder if we do not understand the grace of God, do we know Jesus? Do we really know him? I'm not so sure. Continue on. It says, you learned it from Epaphras. Our dear, dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So here we go. Once again, he's saying, you know what? You learned this from Epaphras, not from me, not directly from me. And who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and you may please him in every way. Here now he's going to talk about ways in which they can please God in every way. By bearing fruit 
in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You see, the Colossian church was not a church that was void of problems. In fact, when I was doing some, some study on Colossians, some study outside of the Bible, I learned that Colossae had been previously been a bustling metropolis, a city that was on the main trade route between Ephesus and the Euphrates. And a few years before, maybe a few decades before, Paul had written this letter, that main trade route had been rerouted to another city north of Colossae. Do you know what happens to a town that's on a trade route? When that trade route gets moved, the town begins to die. I know this in England. My mom is from England, a town called Folkestone. And Folkestone is one of the shortest distances between England and mainland France, there into the mainland Europe. And when my mom was growing up, it was just a busily bustling city. And the ferries going between Europe and England were just so plentiful every single day. And it just had this huge, you know, thriving economy. And then they built what's called the Channel, the underground tunnel that goes between the island and mainland Europe. But they didn't build it in Folkestone. They built it up a few communities north, I think in, was it, New, is in Brighton? Anyhow, it had a horrible effect on the economy of this local area. And so Colossians was kind of like that. It was this bustling city. And now it wasn't. There were people that were unemployed. There were vacant homes and buildings. It was a small cosmopolitan city, which means that there were people of all sorts of different pagan belief systems that were all occupying this city, some which were brought into the early Christian church, which Paul does eventually address some, but we don't entirely know what those things are. In many ways, it parallels with Alberta and the things that we've been experiencing over these last few years. There's times of plenty, and then all of a sudden, there's a restraining that's happened. And many of you in this room have felt that restraining. Maybe your overtime was taken away. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe your spouse lost their job. Maybe you've gone through a separation between you and your spouse and now your strained finances are having to be strained even further because now you're trying to provide sustenance to two households. There are many people that know what it feels like to be in this pinch and so did the people of Colossae. But despite these issues, Paul does not address them in the opening of this letter. That is not his main concern. He does not pray for the circumstantial. He prays that they would be changed. I don't know if you noticed this. He didn't pray for the circumstantial, but he prayed that they would be changed, that they would please the Lord every day. Sometimes, I think we think that our greatest need is a change in our circumstances. But maybe, just maybe, sometimes, maybe our greatest need 
is not always what we think it is. Maybe our greatest need is the awareness of God in the midst of our trial. Maybe God knows that our greatest need is for us to draw closer to him in order that we would trust him more fully, that he would allow certain things maybe sometimes to happen in our life to grow us, to help us conform to his image. Is it possible that God may be using some of your current circumstances to develop you and strengthen you so that you too, like the Colossians, may develop a great endurance and patience so that you would have joy in all circumstances so that you can give thanks to your heavenly Father regardless of your situation. That church is maturity. That is a closeness with God that you can't pay to accelerate that process. That's something that God's got to do in you. But sometimes I worry that we live in a society where things are so neat and tidy. Our society is so good to us. We have such a standard of living that surpasses all of human history that even though we have problems today, this is a question that I recently heard that I've been thinking about a lot when I start complaining about my circumstances or the condition of our nation. And the question is this, do I believe that my grandparents and great-grandparents had it better than me? And if I don't, well, maybe I need to put a few things into perspective because I have almost everything better than they had. But they pioneered the way so that we could have what we have here today in Canada. And the early church pioneered so that we could have what we have today, which is the word of God that's, been, that's unchanged, that we is reliable, that we can build our life upon. In this letter, Paul chose to focus on the fundamentals of the gospel, such as hearing the good news and the necessity of understanding and embracing the grace of God. Paul begins this letter choosing neither to address his own situation or those directly of the church in Colossae in the sense that most scholars believe that when Paul wrote this letter, he was actually sitting in a prison cell in Rome as he was for most of the writing of the New Testament that was written by Paul. How many of us, if we were sitting in prison, our letter, the first two pages would be about our plight, but our situation Church of Colossae, please pray for me that my chains would be broken, that I would be released so I could continue on ministering the gospel and preaching the word that God's given me. But that's not what Paul does. That's not what Paul does. You see, we are all in process. God is growing and developing us to be like him. And this is a process that the Bible calls sanctification. Likewise, God is preparing us to share the gospel with our community and to advance the kingdom of God in Cold Lake and the surrounding area. God needs to develop and grow some things in us if we are going to be able to accomplish that which he's calling us to. And so church, this morning, I believe that God is saying, don't despise the process. But let's give thanks to God for wherever we find ourselves today. And trust him to guide us to where we need to go. 
Let's trust him to develop us so that we can accomplish the plans that he has for us. That we would be strengthened by the power of his Holy Spirit. I'm just going to close here with uh, Psalm 18, verse 32 to 35. And I, I shared a video on, Sunday, on Friday night with our youth. And my buddy Levi, the video that I showed, he referenced one verse of this. But I want to read a little bit more to you here this morning. It says this. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your, your saving help my shield, and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. What makes us great is not our ability to be great, but it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Anyone here that's military knows that there's a time and a season of preparation to take a brand new person that's gone into the military to train them up, to get them ready to actually be able to go into a battlefield. The first stage, I think, is basic training, yes? It was, if you thought basic training was super easy, just a, no problem, raise your hand if you're military. You thought it was pretty easy? Wasn't strong enough for you? Maybe you got into the military at the wrong time. Maybe right before World War II would have been better. Um, cool, but the point is it's not designed to be as easy, is it? Do you think that's the intention? It's not designed to be easy. It's designed to put a strain on you. It's designed to create some resistance in you to prepare you for when the heat is really on. Am I, and sometimes I wonder if we think that life should just be cozy all the time and that we like cry out when, when all of a sudden life isn't comfortable and we think it must be that the enemy's got a hold of us. And maybe it's God is allowing some resistance in our life to train us, to raise us up so that when the battle day comes, we are ready. We are prepared that we can operate as more than conquerors and overcome any situational circumstance in our life. I'm going to end in just a word of prayer. And if you need prayer for anything, please come up. But I also just want to mention that right after service, we're going to be having a connect lunch. And so what that means is that we're going to need some help with some tables. And so what's going to happen is we're going to take this front row and we're going to turn it around so it's facing the back. And we're going to drag it up here and we're going to squeeze rectangular tables in between the rows and we're going to have sections. We're just going to move the chairs around, flip them around so that there's two chairs facing a table. And we're going to do this down the sanctuary until we run out of tables. And then we invite you to stay for lunch. If there's plenty or not much, join us and connect and maybe meet another person as you did already this morning and find out three new things about them that you didn't know. And maybe one of them is their name. But we encourage you to stay and help out with that. If you can help us set up the tables, it'll help, help it go along really fast. And then after, as you guys finish cleaning up, if you could help tear down the table that you're sitting at, wipe it off, and we'll take them back and put them in the back room and reset up our chairs for next week. But I'm going to close today with a prayer. 
God, we thank you this morning. God, that you have a plan for each one of our lives. God, I thank you that you are training our hands for battle. But God, let us not despise discipline, hard work, or the need to persevere. God, we can't expect to become expert marksmen or be able to bend a bow of bronze without some resistance, without some training, without some stretching us beyond our limits that we currently have right now. But God, like the psalmist, may you arm us with strength and keep our way secure. Lord, help us to never take lightly your grace, but remain thankful for how you've rescued us from darkness and brought us into a kingdom of light. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.